introduce myself. Most of you probably have got it figured out, but we're trying to remind that sometimes we have visitors. I'm Pastor Vince Wood, and I've uh, been the pastor here for a little over 10 years, and um, welcome. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, and while you turn there, allow me to uh, extol the uh, virtues of, of motherhood and thank Jamie. <laughs> It takes a mom to have cough drops right there ready. <laughs> and these are really tasty. <laughs> so thank you. So I'll try to bring the message around the cough drop and hopefully you won't have too many uh, coughing spells. We're going to read verses 3 through 11 of Hebrews chapter 12 together. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son he receives. It's for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we have earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them, so shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness." All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we, we think of this passage and all of the references to discipline and recognizing the hardships of life. And we remember where it starts. We're going to consider Jesus. And so we look to you, Lord Jesus. You are the King. Would you reign in this meeting? Would you rule in this place? Would you watch over your word? Would you send your spirit to carry the truth of your word to the heart of each person here? Would you strengthen us, O God, in the midst of trial? Will you give us hope? In the midst of despair, will you remind us of your power that we may endure? Father, for our children, will you bring them to yourself, even those in the children's worship? We give this service to you for your glory. Amen. I remember a, a couple occasions in my life. One, I was 10. And um, I remember that uh, the night before, um, we went over to Grandma's house, and uh, the three kids stayed with Grandma. Mom and our, our stepdad had had a, a pretty big fight. And, and then I remember a phone call and Grandma talking, and uh, we learned that my stepfather had died. And I remember the experience of a haze that was on the whole family. Nothing was quite right. 
And I remember the same thing when we got the call and learned that Robin's mother had passed away. Um, very surprisingly. And that haze, that, that it, things just weren't clear. You know, we couldn't quite see. Uh, ben was describing driving through smoke today to where they couldn't even see like the, the, the uh, windshield wipers. And, and it's, it's similar to that, you know, that you just, you can't see that far ahead. And it's just, you're just going through the motions. And, and I think that that's what hardship does to us at times, doesn't it? It disorients us. Things aren't the way we expected, and it's just like everything is shifted, and everything's just, just off. It's, it's, it's not quite right. Isn't that a part of what, what Job was dealing with as, as he was so struggling with all of this hardship that fell upon him? And he's just crying out to God, why? Why is this? This isn't right. This isn't fair. This isn't consistent. This, this, he was just beside himself, which is what disoriented kind of means, right? He didn't understand. Remember the disciples after Jesus um, has, has, has been crucified, and they just kind of scattered. And even after they'd, they'd, they'd heard of the resurrection, they still didn't know. And Peter's like, uh, I'm just going fishing. Right? What was he trying to do? He's trying to find some, some anchor for his life to get right, reoriented, to see things as they are. That's, I think, why we have so many references in the New Testament to dealing with hardship and trial, right? I mean, it's just the, the Old Testament is, is replete with such references and telling us how to deal with trials, whether it's from, from James chapter 1, which tells us to consider it pure joy when we encounter various trials, or, or, or Romans chapter 5, which tells us the purpose of the trials, or, or the beginning of, of 1 Peter chapter 2, which tells us about the testing of our faith. Throughout the Scripture, in the New Testament in particular, we are told that we're going to face hardship and we're told how to deal with it because God knows it's so disorienting. The Jewish believers to whom this letter was written were disoriented. It didn't seem right. They had grown up in the old administration of the covenant of grace. They were living in that old administration. They understood how all of that worked. It was normal. It was the way things were supposed to be. They understood it by the revelation of God. They had the Old Testament Scriptures. They were trying to follow the Old Testament Scriptures. They had the sacrifices. They had all of the offerings they were supposed to do. They had the rituals. All of that was the same. And now Jesus comes, and they believe in Jesus, and they say, yes, He's the Messiah. This is what we heard about in the Old Testament. And they go to follow Him, and their Jewish community cuts them off. Their friends are killed. Then the Roman government comes against them and opposes them. And they begin to find this is really hard and it's disorienting. What do I do? How do I, how do I put all this together? And so the author of Hebrews writes to them. He's writing to them to help them move forward and not give up. Because the temptation when that hardship comes is, it's like, well, I'm not going there anymore. I'm just going to back up. He says, no, no, keep moving forward. Keep moving forward. And to do that, he tells them they're going to have to face these hardships in faith. And that's what this passage is telling us to do. And I believe that it, it gives us three ways in which we can do that. How we can face hardship in faith. And the first is to consider Jesus. Verse 3, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I think almost every pastor I know has preached a sermon on but God. 
right? You've all heard them, right? Um, and it's important. I remember the first time I taught through Ephesians, that's when I, I taught, uh, I think it was four lessons on but God, as we tried to look at and understand that concept. I'm going to take just a moment, and I want us, we all say, oh yeah, but God, that's right, that's right, that's right. And I heard about a church recently in which the pastor stole something, I think, from me, and he told the congregation they had to keep their butt in the right place. And it really threw them off coming from him. But uh, anyway, <laughs> um, but, but that's, that's biblical grammar. And I want us to, to examine the grammar, to understand what we mean when we talk about but God. What are, we, what are we saying in that? The word but is a word which contrasts what precedes with what follows, right? But gives precedence to what follows, right? Okay, so we understand what that then means. So anytime we say but, we're saying, well, there, the other was true. What's following, though, is really where you need to focus your attention, and that's what we say when we use the word but, and we have to be clear as to what that means, so that we may turn around and we may say, I know that God is good, but life is really hard. Now what we do is we understand the meaning of the word but, what we're saying is both of these statements are true, however, we're contrasting them with one another, and we're giving precedence to the latter to the one that follows. We said, yes, God is good, but we really are focused on the fact that pain is emphasized. The hardness of life is emphasized. But now, if we purposefully reverse that order and we say, life is painful, amen? It is. Not all the time, but, but there is intense pain in this life. But God is good. Yes, it's true that there is pain, but precedence is given to the goodness of God. And now as I face life and as I seek to, to process all that I'm experiencing it, I'm now processing it through the lens of the goodness of God. And now I can look at the passing of my stepfather or the passing of Robin's mom, and I can look at it through that lens and say it's hard, it hurts. But God is good. And that's precisely what the author of Hebrews is doing for us in this passage as he's telling these, these uh, Jewish believers that are going through this difficult time that they have to begin by considering Jesus. Consider him. He's telling them to but God their life. To look at the hardship, but it's through the lens of Jesus Christ. And to be clear, he's talking to us too, right? And so I want us, as we consider Jesus, to consider two things. Consider first, that he never gave in. He endured such hostility by sinners. The word endured in the Greek is the Greek word hupomeno. Hupo meaning under. It's the, the beginning word for a hypodermic needle, right? What is that saying? It's under the dermis, it's underneath the skin. That's what the hypodermic, well, this is underneath. And meno means to remain. 
to remain. The, the picture to me is, imagine uh, a weightlifter on a bench press remaining under the pressure of the weights. Okay? What do they, they do at the combine? Is it with uh, 350 pounds? How many reps can you do, right, at the NFL combine? <laughs> How much? 225. Yep, yep, yep. So, which is exactly the same number of reps for me with either of those numbers. <laughs> There's just no variation whatsoever. Both of them are going to crush my chest, and that's the end, right? But to the person who's remained under that, they've built strength, right? They endure. Now think about the pressures that we go under. We've talked about this at different times, that the word for temptation is the same word that's translated as trial in the New Testament. Exact same word. So temptation is a trial. A trial is a temptation. And so we begin to, to understand that. And the idea of remaining under. Do you realize that with Jesus? He remained under the temptation? We squirt out, don't we? We get out from underneath it by giving in. He never gave in. He remained under fully. He was drinking the cup of the wrath of God and he drank it to the end. He didn't give up part way. He never gave in. Consider that as you face the trials of your life. To consider as you face the hardships that Jesus endured such hostility by sinners. He endured the false accusations. The Lord of glory, the one who had created every man upon this earth, the Lord had been so patient with them and so kind to them and who came to earth that he might bear their sin, they turn around and they declare that he has a demon. And by the power of the devil, he's casting out devils. Can you imagine a more ridiculous accusation? And yet there it is. He who created the Sabbath is accused of breaking the Sabbath and they want to stone him. He who was their king was crucified for being their king. And he didn't give in. He was hated. Hated. There were efforts that were made in his life to try to test him that he might fail. Can you imagine what it's like when people around you are trying to make you fail? They're trying to trip you up. They're setting traps for you. He was arrested. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was wrongly convicted. And he was killed upon a cross. And he never gave in. 1 Peter chapter 2 describes it this way. For you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. You see that Jesus is given as an example here, not an example of, oh, he, he lived the perfect life, we ought to too, no. But he faced suffering and never gave in. 
And the way that he was able to face the suffering and never give in is because he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. As the accusations came against him, he stood against them by saying, I know my father knows. He has searched me and tried me. And I will stand on that truth and on that assessment and that assessment alone. And that's what he's done. He never gave in. And consider also that he empowers you. He says, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. There is an element in which knowing that someone else has suffered in a similar way is, 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 is helpful a little bit with your morale, right? It's like, okay, so I'm not alone. But in reality, it doesn't take away any of the pain that you face, does it? In reality, it doesn't change the reality of the hardship that you have to face. There are a whole lot of realities in that sentence, forgive me. I'm still facing the hardship. It's still hard. So when he's saying, consider him who endured such hostility, he's not just saying, oh see, he handled it too. It doesn't even help when they've suffered harder than me. Right? Sometimes that just makes me feel weak. I said, well, I'm kind of whiny. It doesn't encourage me. It doesn't strengthen me. It doesn't empower me. But when I consider Him who endured such hostility by sinners, the author says, then I will not grow weary or lose heart. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 tells us a part of why that is. Jesus does not say, look at me, you who are weary and heavy laden. I suffered too, so suck it up, buttercup. Right? That is not what Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 says at all, is it? Come, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus promises us when we're facing hardship, if we will consider him, if we will come to him, we will have power to face it. And the way that he works that is through 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm sorry, the chapter before 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. And let me just say real quick. Some of you will say, oh, it's really hard to memorize, right? Some, some people, it's just scripture memory. Oh, it's just so hard. I get that. There are some passages of scripture that I think it's really incumbent upon every Christian to memorize. We, we, just, we just should, because it is the Word of God. It is power for living. It is the way in which we will battle against the temptation that the evil one will bring against us. It is essential in our lives. And as we face hardship, as we face trials, as we face temptations in this life, this verse, I believe, is one... I know it looks really long, right? 
is one that we should memorize so that as we're facing it, I remember what is truth. I will say, yes, it is hard, but no temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape. Why? That you may be able to endure it. This isn't, I don't know, a poster material, or I guess I should say today, meme material, right? This is bedrock truth upon which I must build my life. Because I do face hardship. I face cruel-sussing. Wow, that's twice in two days. Soul-crushing hardships. And I've got to have something to stand on. Those waves are hard. But God will not allow me to be tempted beyond what I'm able. He will. Restrain the waves so it doesn't overtake me. And I can believe that as I face hardships in my life. Forgive me. Whoever puts the Kleenex down here, you're brilliant. Do any of you ever wonder, what else is under there? (laughs) When those hardships face us, where do we stand? You know what? I'm going to consider Jesus. And I know He never gave in. And He empowers me. Amen? Also, I'm going to learn from the hardships. To learn from them. Verses 4 through 9. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we have earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. And shall we not much more rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? To learn from hardships. The word... um, Uh, discipline to us has a couple different ways of looking at it. I mean, for the the most part, we tend to think about discipline in the negative fashion, right? If you discipline your children, you're talking about, you know, giving them a timeout or restricting them or possibly spanking them, whatever that may be, that's discipline. We say the discipline of the church, well, that's, you know, when you admonish or you you, uh, suspend or excommunicate. And and there is that part, but but I think it's important for us to think about uh, church, to think about discipline in general in a broader way as well. Um, We read about that in the book of church order, uh, section 27, paragraph 1, tells us a little bit about discipline. And this is our, our constitution of the PCA, and this is telling us what discipline is about. And it says that discipline is the exercise of authority given the church by the Lord Jesus Christ to instruct and guide its members and to promote its purity and welfare. 
The term has two senses. One, the one referring to the whole government inspection, training, guardianship, and control which the church maintains over its members and its officers and its courts. Frankly, I'm a little uncomfortable with the word control. I would, uh, I'm thinking about bringing an overture to just scratch that out because we don't control. And then two, the other, a restricted and technical sense signifying judicial process. And so to remember that it's got these two different senses, the same is true with the word that we see in this passage that's, that's translated as discipline. The, the word actually is the word from which you get child. That's the root word, and it could be translated childing. Hmm. What does that mean? Well, I like uh, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament uh, gives this description, that it relates to the upbringing of children who need direction, teaching, instruction, and discipline. This word is used five times in verses 4 through 9. So it's, it's used over and over again as this reminder of, of what he's talking about. It's that overall rearing of children. It's, it's used in, and I don't have this uh, as a slide, but in Ephesians um, chapter 5, and, and we read about it, uh, as, I'm sorry, chapter 6, as, as Paul is giving assertions as to what people are to do, children obey your parents in the Lord, honor your father and mother, etc. And then he says, uh, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You see, what it's talking about isn't just be sure that you, you know, give your children timeouts, but it's bringing them up in the, the whole raising of children is what the word is talking about. And so as we're looking at this and seeing that how does the Lord raise us? What is the discipline that he brings into our lives? A part of that is the hardship that he brings. Because we see that God brought the hardship or allowed the hardship to come upon Job, right? But it's almost like God picked that fight with Satan. Didn't he? He said, hey, Satan, you thought about my servant Job? And Job's like, what? No, no, no! Don't do that! And, and Satan picks it up, and, and then they go. But God was guiding it and bringing about good in the life of Job, as he does in our lives. So if I'm going to learn from hardship, how do I, how do I benefit from these hardships? How do, I, how do I learn as I'm going through these difficult things? What does, what does this mean? And, and I, I believe there are three things that I'd like us to see from this passage. Number one, to learn that you're not done. He says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. And all of us can kind of go, oh yeah, that's true, right? But sometimes, don't we feel like we're grown-ups, right? Don't, don't we think we've grown enough? I mean, we're tired. Do you hear what I'm saying? We're tired of growing. I want to... I, I want to get there. I look around, and you know what? Frankly, I'm pretty sure I'm better than most other people I know. Right? Yeah. And this isn't said as a pride thing right now. It's really a, 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 a confession, because I think it's true in our lives that as we look around, we think we're doing better than most people. We think we're better than them. And sometimes we're saying, can't we just go downhill for a while? Right? I think Bob's around here somewhere, riding a bike, right? And, and Rick. Riding a bike in Florida is a good idea. There are no hills. Wind is what you count as your, as your hill, right? It's just, it's all flat. It's wonderful. Here, 
It's craziness. I grew up in Colorado Springs. It's like it's uphill both ways. Guaranteed. And you think I'm kidding. <laughs> Try to ride the hills there sometimes. You go up, but you've got to go up another. And don't you sometimes in life just want, just want a little downhill? Please? Isn't it time to be able to coast for just a little bit? Of course, I'm guessing Bob and Rick, they probably pedal downhill. <laughs> what about in our Christian life? To want that, that break. You see, I think we see something about uh, what we're to do in those hardships when we look at um, Philippians chapter 3. As we understand that we're not done. We haven't reached the end yet. The Apostle Paul, nearing the end of his life, says, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You're not done. Learn from hardships that you're not done. Learn from hardships that He loves you. Look at verses 5-8. through eight. I just want to draw your attention to a few things that I see when we're reading through this. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son! Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And He scourges every son whom He receives. It's for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Do you think the author's trying to make a point in this passage? Is he seeking to emphasize something? I couldn't quite catch it. Were you able to? Do you see the love and the tenderness of God toward you, His people, that He wants to lay out for you and to scream how important it is that He loves you? And frankly, sometimes we forget that. I was taught years ago that when you're facing hardship, that there are two truths that you hold on to. You have two hands, and so you hold on to each of these two truths. And it's important that you're facing hardship. The first one is that you hold on to the truth that God is sovereign. He's in control. And as I'm able to hold on to that reality, I recognize that what I'm facing is not just random. How terrifying would that be? No more control than that. And the second is that God is good. Which reminds me that He's not capricious. He's not like that, 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 that child burning up ants with a with a magnifying glass. He's good. And I've come, as I grow in my Christian life, to understand there's a third one, which is equally important, and that is He loves me. I don't have any hands left, so I've got to rest in God's hand on that one. And He holds me, knowing that He loves me. And as I face hardship, I have to believe all three of these truths. Remember, and you face hardship, that you're not done, that God loves you, 
and He is guiding you. Look at verse 9. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? He's giving an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, okay, your, your fathers discipline you, and that's fine. Well, God's better than them, and He disciplines you, so you should be fine with that too, right? That's what he's trying to do, and to, to use that uh, logical argument so that we're able to grasp this idea. Earthly discipline provides success for us, doesn't it? Isn't that really what we're trying to do as we discipline our children? We're trying to help them have the tools that they need that they may be successful in this life. I think it's Tom Landry who said, the job of a football coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to achieve what they've always wanted to be. Isn't that kind of the goal of a parent? It just is. But God's discipline, he says, comes from the Father of spirits, and its result is life, that we may live. So first of all, as I'm facing hardship, I need to consider Jesus. Secondly, I need to learn from hardships, knowing that I'm not done, that he loves me, and that he's guiding me. And finally, I need to produce fruit, or I can produce fruit. Verses 10 and 11. For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I want to ask you if you've got your Bibles, if you can turn to John chapter 15 for just a moment. I want to spend just a little bit of time as a part of what's called the upper room discourse, but they've left the upper room at this point. They're out wandering, probably walking through uh, a vineyard as Jesus begins to talk to them. And he says, I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch, and it should say, lifts up. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches, and he who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We can talk about a lot of different things from that passage. I think I could probably preach about four or five different sermons from that passage as I think about just how rich it is. The one truth that we can't miss is he wants us to bear fruit, right? That I know from this passage. He wants me to bear fruit. And we can talk about fruit in, in, in several different ways. We can talk about uh, there's, there's aspect of, uh, of um, bearing fruit of uh, good, good deeds. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. He wants to produce that in us, right? And that's a part of it. But that's really the fruit of the Spirit. The second fruit is, well, what, what is the fruit of an apple tree? It's, 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 it's an apple. What does an apple produce? An apple tree. You are a believer. The fruit that you produce is disciples of Jesus, right? 
other believers. And so there's that, that element. Well, the author of, the, uh, of Hebrews describes two types of fruit for us in this passage that I want us to consider for just a moment. And the first one is that we find the peace of faith. That's the first fruit. The peace of faith. He says the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Peace is one of those words that it's hard to define sometimes, right? Usually we define it in contrast to something else. But that's not the reality. Peace is is a positive thing. Peace, as, as I think about it, is best defined as when everything is right. That's when there's peace. When everything is right. Think about what you experience of a peaceful moment. Everything's right. Think about a peaceful moment out camping under the stars. The temperature is fine. The gentle breeze. You hear the birds. You hear the frogs. You're at peace. And then an ant crawls across your nose. The peace is gone, right? Because it's not right anymore. This is why we have tents. Anyway. That can be used twice. Either way. Anyway. Peace is when everything is right. Think about conflict between enemies. How do you bring peace? When everything is right between them. When there's respect and kindness and forgiveness. But what's the ultimate peace? It's peace with God. And that's only found by faith. For without faith, it's impossible to please God. For the one who comes to him must believe that he exists and he's a rewarder of those who seek him. It was a church I went to years ago where Robin and I were married, and they would talk about this regularly, and they would use a cross as the image of the ministry of the church. And it was about peace. That the cross reminds us of the importance of peace. The cross reminds us of peace in the Christian life, for it has, first of all, the upright portion, which reminds us that first and foremost in the person's life, they must find peace with God. Everything must be right in my relationship with God. And then from there, the arms are outstretched that I might have peace with man, with the people around me. That it's a reminder to us of the need for peace. Peace with God. How do I find peace with God? Well, again, that's the cross, is it not? He who hung upon it. The Lord Jesus Christ took upon Himself the full wrath of God upon that cross that we might have peace with God and we receive that peace by faith. Will you put your trust in Jesus today? This day, will you say, Father, forgive me because of my sin, or forgive my sins because of the work of Jesus and receive that and find peace with God. And then peace with men is an outworking of the same principle, is it not? To be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another just as God and Christ has forgiven me. And I'm going to find that peace. And as I'm going through the hardships of life, I can produce the fruit of peace and faith as I believe. Also look for righteousness. It's the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Sometimes our theology gets askew because we get a, a little idea and we take it too far beyond what it is supposed to do. 
And we live in an age in which we talk about justification, and justification has two parts, the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. But we live in an age in which the first one is forgotten. We don't talk about Jesus forgiving us our sins. We just talk about being declared righteous. And the impact of that, when we emphasize that alone, is we no longer see sin as sinful. We begin to live our lives in an entirely different way, and we begin to build these ideas then that, that my righteousness is all in Christ, and we think that and there's nothing that can ever be done of righteousness in my own life, but the scripture over here says that there is a peaceful fruit of righteousness, right? I think I want to follow the word of God instead of the, the philosophy of my day. There is a righteousness that God produces in us. There are works of righteousness that he does in us, and those are produced by faith. Remember, faith reaches its fulfillment in obedience. But that's what my faith is, is I'm going to follow God and I'm going to do that which he calls. Now, is your righteousness going to be enough to save you? To quote Pete the Cat, that great philosopher, goodness, no. But it doesn't change the reality of the fact that God has done a great work. And I malign him when I deny that. And I want to see him produce that peaceful fruit of righteousness in my life. This is one of those times when I really wish I could sing. I guess I almost should have you come up and just play this and we'll all sing it together, but we, we don't have the words. So let me just read to you this hymn. It's one of my favorites. More love to Thee, O Christ. More love to Thee, O Christ. More love to Thee. Hear Thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to Thee. More love to Thee. More love to Thee. Once earthly joy I craved, sought peace and rest. Now Thee alone I seek. Give what is best. This all my prayer shall be more love, O Christ, to Thee. More love to Thee. More love to Thee. I hear these last two. Let sorrow do its work. Send grief and pain. For sweet are Thy messengers, and sweet their refrain when they can sing with me. More love, O Christ, to Thee. More love to Thee. More love to Thee. Then shall my latest breath whisper Thy praise. This be the parting cry my heart shall raise. This shall it, its, its prayer shall be. More love, O Christ, to Thee. More love to Thee. More love to Thee. Do you see the depth of theology in that hymn? Do you see the strength of faith in that hymn? As we face hardship, that becomes our cry. More love to thee. Let's face hardship in faith, okay? To do that, we need to consider Jesus. We need to le learn from hardship. And then we see that we can see and produce fruit. Let's pray. Father, there are 
bring the truth of this message to every one of our hearts, Lord. Not my message, but the message of this passage that we can face hardship in faith. And Father, I know everyone here is facing some level of hardship, something that's going on in their lives. We know of several wrestling with cancer and and other debilitating illnesses. We know others that are facing uh, just the weakness of their their, their bodies, others are seeing broken relationships. And oh God, grant that we may live knowing that you are involved. Help us, O oh God, to face these hardships and to do so in faith so that the name of Jesus will be praised above all names. Amen.